Uh, my name's Jeff. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And, uh, and actually, I was going to say a little bit about Advent, but Mike, Mike just did a seamless job of connecting our service, so thanks, Mike. Uh, we're just going to jump right in. And this morning, we're in, um, we're in Luke chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7. It's really 12 verses, but it's some pretty big stuff. Uh, but the text this morning, you'll see, as we, as we work our way through it, you'll see uh, there's a lot of mention of fire. And actually, Ryan, I jumped the gun a little bit. We're not going to read the text right away. I, I was trying to think, um, do I have a good story about fire? I didn't play with fire a lot as a kid. I don't have a lot of great stories about fire. I, I, got, on, I got online to see if there are you know, funny stories about fire, and then there's like all these accounts from firefighters. Who are, but honestly, firefighters don't think fire's funny. Like, it's not funny. <laughs> they have funny stories from other firefighters, but it's never about fire. It's about these ridiculous calls that get called on that have nothing to do with fire. But, but fire's not really funny, so this morning's going to have a bit of a serious tone to it. Good news, but, but a serious tone. And we'll have to think about the degrees of fire, because at the end we're going to think about how much of this fire are we really ready for I was thinking as a kid, the, the, the one time that I think I ever did anything remotely with fire, maybe you remember, maybe they still have those little poppers. You, you're not, you're, you throw them into the ground and they pop and there's just this, ti- this, uh, this ever so tiny spark, right? And maybe your bigger cousins were really cool and they would snap them in their fingers, right? But that's, I mean, that's probably about as close as I got to like trying to control fire as a kid. I, I remember my grandma had a barn burn one time. Her barn had gotten old, and they burned. It was gigantic fire. Somebody was there to watch that thing. I was, I just, you couldn't get too close. It was a big fire. But you, you've shot, you probably have your own fire stories. I'm going to ask you to just keep those in the back of your mind as we work through the text this morning, and we'll, we'll end talking about fire. But as Mike said, it's Advent season, and as we've been trying to talk about, for hundreds of years, the people of God have been waiting for God to do something. And the Gospel of Luke, which is where we are this morning, picks up with all this activity. There's these babies being born. John the Baptist is born, and there's heavens coming to earth, and these angels are, are talking, and things are happening with priests. You know, John's dad's a priest. There's all this stuff happening. It's crazy things. And Jesus is born, and of course, we're going to really lean into that in the next couple of weeks. Jesus is born, and what does that mean? And all these angels and all this activity, and then we wait again. Almost another 30 years for these babies to grow up. <laughs> But that's where we are. John is beginning his ministry in Luke chapter 3, and things are happening again. And I think you know this, or you wouldn't be here, but what happens next is the most important stuff in the history of the world. John begins preaching, and Jesus steps on the scene, and it changes the world forever. The world is never a different, is a, is a different place. It's never going back to the way it was before Jesus. And John is preaching, and he says, God's about to act, and his Messiah is coming, and he he says, you're not ready. (laughs) That's what Advent is about, is waiting and preparing. You need to get ready. You need to rethink everything. You need to repent and change your life. So let's let's look at exactly what John says, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to work our way up, up through verse 18, but we'll take this in chunks. When the crowds, and I love this, I had a lot of fun just sitting in this text this week. You'll be like, why? You'll see why. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. I love that. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? 
you, you band of vipers. Here's a big bunch of snakes. Who warned you? Could you imagine Mike getting up here and being like, you brood of snakes? John's like, oh, I'm glad you're here. Grab a bag. No, you, you, you band of vipers. He's preaching to the crowd. It's a pretty strong message. Prove, verse 8, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. There's, there's something about how you live mattering. Now it's time to repent. Turning to God is going to mean changing how you relate to others in your lives. You've got to show it with fruit, John's going to say. He says, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. You can't rely on your pedigree. I don't want to hear about your nat- national or religious or Jewish identity. It doesn't matter here. What matters is the fruit of your life. I actually think this could be a sermon on its own. If you, if you stop and think about this, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of this God. It's awesome. Then he says, verse 9, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised. It's ready to sever the roots of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and it will be thrown into the fire. It's the fire. John is saying, everybody needs to repent. He's speaking to the crowd. You bunch of snakes. You would think no one would come, but massive crowds of people we talked about last week are going out into the wilderness to hear John. And he's warning them to flee from the wrath that is to come. The axe is laying right there. It's poised. It's ready to take down these trees. And John says, you better start bearing good fruit. You better get ready for the coming of the Messiah. It's not going to be good if you don't repent. We're going to keep reading. He's going to talk about sharing with the poor, being honest in your dealings, treating people with kindness. He says, if you don't start, you'll be thrown into the fire. Wood that is burned up. You're longing for the coming of this Messiah, but as we talked about last week in Malachi, are you ready? Can you handle it? Are you prepared? John is interested in fruit, like all the prophets were, covenant faithfulness, loving God and loving neighbor, treating your neighbor as you would want to be treated yourself. That's how they're going to prepare themselves to receive this Messiah. They're going to repent, they're going to rethink everything, and they're going to bear the fruit that Israel was always called to bear. Now the first thing, I'll say just a little bit here, um, we've got a, a couple other big things we're going to talk about, but... One of the things I want to point out as we go through the Gospels this year is if you, get to, if you read the Gospels side by side, you get a sense for these authors because they are writing discipleship manuals to churches. They're writing what Jesus did because how else to learn other than following Jesus. And they all kind of have a different emphasis. If you read Matthew's account of this, Matthew's going to hone in on the Pharisees and the Sadducees because that's a big theme in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's going to do a lot with that. But Luke is doing something a little different. And Luke doesn't mention the Pharisees. He's just, Jesus is preaching to the crowds. And he calls them all a bunch of snakes. Everybody needs to rethink everything. Everybody's a snake. This is one of the mistakes I think that we easily make. We've talked a lot about living in modern day Babylon. We begin to imagine that when the Lord comes... 
He's going to come and deal with them, right? He's going to come and deal with them. Those, those are the bad guys, and God, come and deal with them. I mean, one of the things, we try to talk about this in the last two years, but if you aren't paying attention, it is going to be easier and easier for you to draw the line between good and evil between us and them. One of the things that Jesus is going to want you to see, I mean, we're just, we're just, we're preparing. We're not going to master this stuff this morning. We're preparing for his coming. But Jesus is going to want you to see that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. John says, all of you are vipers. <laughs> you all better pay attention. I just wanted to say a word about this because I think we're getting too good at this as a culture. We're getting too good at scapegoating, blaming, accusing. We're getting too good of getting that adrenaline rush of unity around hatred. And I think one of the limitations of internet and social media is that we're getting way too good at reducing other people to their worst belief. Or, or some of this action where people are like going back 30 years into someone's life as if nothing can change in 30 years. I mean, we're just getting too good at reducing people, losing sight of the image of God and others, uniting around hatred. I think it's one of the dangers of social media and this lack of conversation we're having. When the Lord comes, are you ready? When the Lord comes, he's going to come and deal with every single one of us, not just them. <laughs> will he deal with them? Yeah, he will, but he's going to deal with us too. That's what John is starting with. In other words, as we begin this morning, we shouldn't be so sure that our heart is pure, that there's nothing that the fire of God needs to burn away. That's where we start. But we're going to get a little bit more specific, so we'll pick up now in verse 10. You might think, you start with a message like this, you bunch of snakes, that you might, oh, I, wanna, I don't want to listen to this. Figure the people are just walking away. No, no, they're, they're locked in. They're getting baptized. They're serious. They want to prepare themselves, as I think you do too, right? You wouldn't be here if you didn't. So the crowds are curious. Well, what do we do, John? John, what do we do? How do we prepare? And then John is going to get specific. Well, if you have two shirts, he's going to look around. Anybody got two shirts? If you have two shirts, this, this guy over here doesn't have any. Share. If you got two shirts, share it with somebody who doesn't. You got food? You're satisfied? There's people who are hungry. Feed them. That's what John says. Verse 12, even the corrupt tax collectors came. The corrupt, these are the people who bid on a region with Rome, the oppressor, the current Babylon of that day. And they bid, and they, and they made a bid, and, and whoever's the highest bidder gets to collect taxes from that region. But Rome doesn't care how much money you collect. And whatever you collect beyond what you bid is yours to keep. And so that's why the tax collectors were hated. They were doing Rome's work, but they were being dishonest with their own people. <laughs> and so they're there, and actually, I, you could imagine some of the people out there to repent, to be the new Israel, are like, yeah, I know why they're here. They do need to repent. But they're there. What do we do, John? Well, John says, you can collect your taxes, but no more taxes than the government requires. Be, be honest and fair in your dealings with, with your people. And then you've got some soldiers, probably Jewish soldiers, probably not Roman soldiers here. But what do we do, John? Well, don't extort money. 
Don't make false accusations. Be content with your pay. I know I'm not the only one who's done missionary work in this room right now. And I'm probably not the only one who's been in a place where I don't know the language very well. And the people in formal uniforms walk around with big guns. And sometimes stop you when you're alone and say, you just did something wrong. Pay me right now. (laughs) It's been happening for a long time. John says to the soldiers in in Judea, don't do that. Don't intimidate others with your force. Treat everyone as they're your brother or sister. Be kind. Don't extort money. Now, if you read through these again, I think you'll see that John is stressing economic justice. There's a a theme there, right? Being economically just all the way through. Why does he do that? You know there are other sins that need to be repented of in the first century Israel. Why doesn't he mention those? I have a pretty good feeling that if you were an adulterer, John would want you to repent. In the first century, if you were a Sabbath breaker, I think John would want you to repent. If you were a drunkard, John wants you to repent. But he doesn't mention any of those. The only things he mentioned pertain to personal economics. What's he trying to do? Well, remember, John is preparing a people who are going to receive a new kingdom. They're going to receive a new government. They're going to receive a new king. One of the things I like to say when we talk about the kingdom of God coming is that Jesus is going to come and his kingdom is going to rearrange the world. And so John is preparing that. And so I think there's two ways that you could kind of, I mean, as I read what John is doing, I think there's two ways to think about it. I think they both lead us to Jesus. So I'll tell you both and then you can decide which you want this morning. Because the first one's going to come a little stronger. I think Jesus is going to reinforce this in his ministry, but I think John starts with economic justice because if we pay attention to what the Gospels say about money, I think we can say that the greatest hindrance to entering the kingdom of God is the tyranny of economic self-interest. When Jesus is going to say you can't can't serve two masters. Jesus is going to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Now he's going to say, with God, all things are possible. We'll talk a little bit about it. Don't freak out. But I'm just saying, John is preparing a people, and he's saying the greatest hindrance to you entering this kingdom that is coming is your own economic self-interest. Now that's strong and harsh, but that's how it comes. But maybe you want to, I think this is just, it's going to lead us to say, but maybe this is more helpful this morning. I think you could also say that John only talks about economic justice because it's going to take us the longest to learn it. (laughs) I mean, because maybe you're feeling that this morning. Ah, what do I do? What do I do? Well, it's going to take us a while to learn it. we got a whole gospel to read through, and Jesus is going to be teaching us and showing us and helping us learn where we're at, and he's going to be helping us see the good news that we don't understand. And so there's a good chance we need to hear again and again to be loving with our money. (laughs) And so John says, well, I'm going to tell you this today, but you're going to need to hear it. Because this is not a decision, and you and I know this, this is not a decision that we make one time and we're just over it. Oh, I've decided to be generous with all that I own forever. No, no, this is a decision that we make probably every day of our lives. So John starts with that. 
That's where we begin. You can either say that the greatest threat to you and I entering the kingdom is our own economic self-interest. Or you can say, well, I'm a disciple. I got a lot to learn, and this is just where we got to start because I'm going to need to hear this again and again and again. And I know I've been a pastor long enough to know that it's not uncommon to get uncomfortable when talking about money. If you're new to church today and we're talking about money and you're feeling uncomfortable, it's not uncommon. But if you're new today, I have no problem telling you, I think Crossview handles this really well. I think Crossview has a rich history of seeking to live generous lives. I think Crossview, I think we as a people hear this as good news because we trust Jesus. And so I think there's a sentiment in our church that would say, if there's a good way to handle money, Jesus knows it and we want to learn it from him, right? So you don't have to be threatened by it. There is, there's a good way to organize where money sits and, and, and what you love in this world. And we learn it from Jesus. He knows the way to life. And so with the crowds, we say, yeah, we're a band of snakes, but we're willing to learn. We're humble, Jesus. Teach us. Now, I want to say a little bit more about money before we move on to the next part of the text because, because it's such a big topic. And I was talking to, to Sarah, our children's director in the hall. She's like, are you ready for this morning? I was like, yes, yeah, a little bit more serious. I said, and it's, this, it's an Advent message. It's not a Christ, this is an Advent message. This is not a Christmas message. I recognize that. But I want to talk a little bit about a biblical theology of money. It's not holistic. I'm going to do this really quick, and there's so much more to say, but here's what I want to say. We're going to be in the Gospels for a year. Jesus talks a lot about money, so we will dive deeper into this. There's a lot more complexity than what I'm going to share this morning. But a a few things that I think are helpful to get us thinking, to get us, to, to, to help our hearts be willing to repent and rethink everything. Because that's what God is asking us to do. The kingdom of God is an alternative society. And it only works the way it's described because God himself is king. And so a lot of us bring ideas and I know how loud the political voices in our lives are. And they shape the way we come to the Bible. But again, it's an invitation to let the Bible shape the way you approach politics. To shape the way you approach economics. And if I think it's safe to say this. I don't think this is politically laden language at all other than kingdom language. Jesus wants to teach us an economics of love. <laughs> an economy of love is an alternative kind of society. I do think someday, I'm not ready to do this, but someday I would love to do a teaching through the law. <laughs> and it's fascinating when you study God's design for, the, for his people, for the nation of Israel. I'm telling you, God asked the people of Israel to do things economically that you and I have never seen before. We've never experienced. No one lives this way. I was thinking about the the, the closest I've gotten to understanding the economics of Israel in the law is the church. The church really is the place where we practice what God wants for the whole world. We, we, We learn it here together as we follow Jesus together. But if you get into the law, you'll start with the Ten Commandments and you'll go right into this teaching in Exodus 21. You'll find out debts are only going to last seven years in Israel. Yeah, you'll find hard times. Life is hard, broken. Debts only, they're canceled after seven years. 
you'll find out in God's design for Israel that, yes, he understands over the course of time, some families are going to get hard times, other families are going to flourish, but every 50 years is jubilee, which means the land goes back to its original family owners. Now, you and I have never seen anything like, I don't know what that is. That's an economy of love. It's radically different. You and I have to rethink everything. But that's what the law presents. And, you know, we talked about exile. A big part of the theological reasoning for why Israel ended up in exile is because they didn't do it. I mean, there's, as you could imagine, there's no evidence in the Old Testament that they ever did a jubilee, that they ever reset everything. <laughs> Just didn't happen. And so the prophets come along and they're trying to remind Israel of the covenant and all these laws that they've been ignoring. Now, I I know we live in America, which may be the most prosperous, wealthy country there's ever been on the planet. And so I want to say a couple of things about this, too. I mean, the prophets are not against wealth and prosperity. They're not. The prophets did not have a vision of Israel living in some sort of enforced poverty. And they did see prosperity as part of human flourishing and part of God's blessing upon Israel. The prophets were radically against economic injustice. I mean, you read through, they get mad. Yes, God wants us to flourish and prosper, but never take advantage of your neighbor. Again, as we're talking about an economy of love, we could also say that justice is what love looks like in public. (laughs) That's true justice as God envisions it. And if prosperity comes in the form of economic injustice, well, the prophets have no room for it. For the comfortable rich who ignore the struggles of the poor, the prophets are a disruptive force. They aren't against prosperity, but they won't allow you to enjoy your prosperity if you're ignoring your neighbor in need. They will irritate you. And like John, they will call you to repent and rethink everything. Why is this? Because they know. That if you and I are, are ruled by economic self-interest, they know that we will begin to look at our neighbor as our competitor. And life will become, what do we say all the time? Life will become a game to be won. Not a gift. You're, our lives are a gift from God. It's not a game. It's a gift. And our God, who actually owns all the earth, right, has generously given to each one of us. And if your neighbor becomes your competitor, how are you going to live what you were made to live and love them? And the other thing that happens, and you and I know this, the kingdom of God, I mean, look at Jesus. Abundance is swirling all around him. Everywhere he goes is the year of Jubilee in the Gospels. It's a kingdom of abundance. But somehow, when we turn our neighbor into our competitor, the kingdom of abundance becomes the realm of scarcity. And now we're just fighting with one another. And so John the Baptist with the prophets are calling us to rethink everything, to prepare the way for Jesus. And as I said, over the next year, we'll be in the Gospels. Jesus at times will talk about money, and he will do so with invitation and challenge. So we'll get into this more as we journey together. But let me just tell you some of the invitation and some of the challenge, right? Jesus invites us to be free from greed. If you know anything of greed, it's powerful. It gets rooted deep into your heart. Jesus invites us to, he says, I'll free you from that. You don't need to live that way. 
And I know you feel this. He also wants to free you from financial anxiety. Some of you just took a deep breath. I want that. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. He wants to free you from greed and financial anxiety. And he wants to do that by helping you learn to trust him. That he will provide for you. That he will care for you. And he wants to teach us to be generous as our Heavenly Father is generous. Because then we will know the fullness of life. Jesus is not against abundance. It swirls around him. Jesus, and this is where you can't put Jesus in a box. He, he, he spends time with the poor, but he also spends time with the wealthy. This will probably come up later in the year, but Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are probably some of Jesus' closest friends. I think they're really wealthy. And so there's a lot going on. I mean, but, he, but what Jesus is trying to do is he, he, he wants to free us from all this anxiety and this fear and this greed But he also wants to challenge us to depart from wealth as an idol and to put our trust in God and not in money. (laughs) That's a big part of living into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is this alternative economy. Modern day Babylon in many ways is fueled by fear and greed. But the kingdom of God has an economy based on trust and generosity. We trust God and we're generous and we learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus teaches love economics. And I think it's safe to say that the most important thing you can do with your money is to love God and to love your neighbor. And I think it happens in that order. You you have to love God first. If you think you're going to keep loving your neighbor and you don't love God anymore, you'll, you, it's not going to last. It just won't last. I see it around me all the time. You know, it's, people will talk. It just won't last. If you don't love God, you won't continue to love your neighbor. You love God and you meet with God and you sit with Jesus and it's a daily choice every day. Now, we're not mastering this. John the Baptist is preparing us, but Jesus is going to continue. We'll we'll talk about this over the years, over the year here, but let's keep going. As we prepare for the coming of Jesus, we'll finally get back to this theme of fire. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone's expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they're eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. And John answers their questions by saying, I baptized you with water. You know, all these crowds, they want to hear, he's calling them snakes and they're sticking around. Are are you the one? Well, I baptized you with water, but, but someone is coming who is greater. He's so much greater than I am. So much greater than I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his, his sandals. I mean, John has this, yes, yeah, I know, I know what's happening right here is really cool and exciting. But the one coming after me, folks, this is the one we're waiting for. Right after me, I'm preparing the way. He's, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals, to tie his shoes. I'm not worthy. And John says, I will baptize you with water. He says here, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God himself, and with fire. (laughs) He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 17, he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he's going to clean up the threshing area. 
gathering the wheat into his barn, but he's going to burn the chaff with never-ending fire. Something's going to happen here. It's a big deal. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news, the gospel to the people. This is good news. How is this good news? What's going on here? John the Baptist said the Messiah would come. He's going to consume the chaff with an unquenchable fire, but he's also going to baptize us with fire. And I was sitting with this fire imagery this week and thinking part of me is like, I don't know that I want this unquenchable fire to come. Uh, That doesn't sound, that's, that's serious business, right? Do I want an unquenchable fire to come? By the same time, If Jesus is going to baptize me with the Holy Spirit and fire, I want that. What do I do? I'm kind of torn. I don't know that I want this. But I want to be baptized with fire. What do we do with this? Actually, I could say I did a lot of work on this this week too. But but I kind of landed here. There's more to say about fire. Actually, fire is a major theme in the Bible. In terms of how God reveals himself, you can do a biblical theology with this as well. But, But as I want to talk about it this morning... I want to present to you kind of an image from the Bible that I found really helpful as I interacted with some teaching around this. I'm going to go back to Moses again. If you know the story in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out in the wilderness. God's doing work in his life. He comes to the foot of Mount Sinai, and lo and behold, he encounters the one true living God in a burning bush. You know that story? You remember that story, right? There's this burning bush. It's ablaze with the fire of God. But the bush itself is not consumed by the fire. The fire is in the bush and the fire is real. But the bush remains green and lively. It is not reduced to ashes. What is going on here? Well, there's again layers. I mean, there's so many things being revealed about who our God is all the time as we study the scriptures. On one level, it's worth noting that the fire blazes but does not consume the bush. Any other fire would need to consume fuel. Uh, This fire can only continue to blaze while there is stuff it can consume and then it goes out. That's how fire works. But but in the bush, the the fire in the bush is self-sustaining. It needs no fuel. It blazes as it chooses. It tells us something about God. God is self-subsistent. He is self-determining. He is self-sustaining. He will be who he will be. He is who he is. It's not consuming to stay burning. It's just God is self-sustaining. God, our God is a consuming fire. But it seems as you begin to see what fire does throughout Scripture, the fire, consuming fire of God, only consumes that which needs to be consumed. This bush is alive, it's green, it's pure, it's it's living, it's ablaze, but it's not consumed. It's on fire, but it's not lost. It's refined, but it's not destroyed. I want you to keep that image in mind as we continue to walk through this. So how do we think about this fire? Because fires can be scary. Fire, I told you, I I looked online, firefighters don't joke about fire. They joke about a lot of things in their job, but not fire. 
So we've got fire, and it can be scary, and what what are we supposed to do with this fear? But at the same time, and John says, and it sounds kind of scary, are you ready? Can you stand? The fire's going to burn up the chaff, and it's unquenchable. It's never-ending. But then you also have to hold that in balance with other parts of the biblical revelation. If you've been reading in the Gospel of Luke up until now, you will, re- you will be reminded again and again that whenever heaven comes to earth, what does heaven say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Every angel, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when we get to 1 John, the Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus says, God is love, and perfect love casts out fear. <laughs> so what do we do with this? Well, I guess I've been trying in Advent season to lean into this whole tension and let it be a tension when God comes, when the Messiah comes, is it it a good day or a bad day? And I've been trying to say it depends on who you are. I've been trying to say if you're proud, it's not going to be a good day for you. It's an unquenchable fire. But if you're humble, it's going to be a good day because God is rearranging the world and he's going to lift you up. (laughs) Or let me say it this way, if you're with us this morning online or here, if you don't know Jesus and you don't know his way of love, I would say it's natural and healthy for you to have some fear about what in your life will be consumed by this fire. And I want to invite you to get to know Jesus. (laughs) But I think you should have a healthy fear. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that's really important. The fear of God is a necessary place to begin. It's by the fear of the Lord that you and I begin to take God seriously, isn't it? Isn't that? It's by the fear of the Lord that we acknowledge that there is an accounting, that nothing is hidden before the one true king and the one true judge. Imagine, God knows everything you've ever done and everything you've ever thought and everything. I mean, there's an accounting, You and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account. If that doesn't give you a healthy fear, I don't know. It's real and it's serious. You and I are going to be evaluated by King Jesus. We take it seriously. That's the fear of the Lord. Again, that's often where our journey begins because that's when we recognize our sin and we're like, I am accountable and I I need to repent. I need a savior. I can't save myself. I need forgiveness. I've done some awful things. It's where it begins. Now, some of you know if you allow fear to reign, it's really hard to grow in discipleship. I actually think that's one of the problems we've had in modern day discipleship. We do start with a healthy fear, but you can't let fear reign or you will never blossom in the love of Christ. Because once you know Jesus, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Amen? Once you know Jesus, you begin to realize God's heart for you. It starts with a healthy fear, but then you get to know Jesus. You walk this life. And you begin to learn that God is good. That he delights in you. That this gospel story is like no other story. That the God of all creation recognized your sin and entered into this world. And took your place on the cross? That's his heart for you. And, you're, and then you're overwhelmed by the love of this God. Who would do that? 
Who would take my place? I know what I've done. I have a healthy fear. God, this is your God. You don't need to be afraid of a God who does that for you, even while you're a sinner and don't know him. He's good. He's a God you can trust. He wants to provide for you so you don't have to be anxious. You can say that God loves you with a burning, intense love. He is not lukewarm towards you. And Jesus wants to change you. I mean, I haven't said this for a while. I used to say this a lot. I I want our church to kind of have a posture of come as you are. Wherever you're at, come. You're welcome. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. There are some things that you and I need to repent of. We need to rethink. We need to change. We need to confess. Jesus loves us and he wants us to flourish. And so there's some stuff that he wants to burn out of our life like chaff. That's what God wants to do. He wants to set us free. Now, why do I say the consuming fire of God consumes what is consumable? Because, well, Paul says it. (laughs) Doesn't he in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? What does he say? We're going to walk through fire and what's going to burn up? The, The hay, the straw, and the wood. Right? The axe is laying at the root of the tree because the wood's going to burn up. But he says, you and I will not be lost. We will be saved through the fire. Because that which is of the love of God, that which is of the image of God, that will be refined and redeemed. The gold, the precious jewels, all the chaff, all all that's going to burn off. And God will refine what is inconsumable. What is unconsumable? We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If you don't know Christ, that's that's a healthy fear. But if you do know Christ, if you have your faith and trust, and if you know that Jesus has taken your place, we don't really have to be afraid. It's where we can start longing for this baptism of fire. Because the, recou- the result of encountering Christ as a consuming fire, as Paul records it in 1 Corinthians 3, is to be saved through the fire. I was thinking about this. I was looking at, some of you are at home, so I think the cameras can scan. But we have some wonderful people came in and decorated the church, which I, we can clap for them. I think it looks great. But Sherry and Abby and Chrissy and Sylvia and Sarah and Liam, I'm not going to leave you out, Liam, they were here this week decorating. I think they did a great job. And there, there are some ornaments, I don't know if you can see them in the back or online, but they, they're those icicle ornaments. You know what I'm talking about. Those, they, look, they look like this beautiful diamond needle. <laughs> and so sometimes I'm up here while I'm thinking, I don't know, it's just good to stand and get out of my office. And I was looking over and I was, it just made me think of this diamond needle and we're talking about wood and and, and hay and straw, and I was like, imagine, you know, what's the, how do you find a needle in a, in a haystack? What if you've got this diamond needle, and you want to find it, and you've got to find it, but it's in this giant haystack? Well, set the hay on fire. <laughs> the hay's going to burn, and guess what's going to be laying there? It's, it's this beautiful diamond needle. The wood, the hay, the straw are things in our lives like pride, Greed, we could say economic self-interest, lust, you name your sin. It gets in our life and we pick it up and we get formed in it. And sometimes we willingly embrace it and hold it dear. And then the fire of God comes. And it burns it up. And that precious diamond that you are, made in the image of the God who is love, remains. And you get to shine. You get to live. 
you're a you're a you're a, you're a, you're a gold nugget. You're a, you're a nugget of gold, and you've been wrapped. You can call it chaff. I haven't spent much time on a farm, so I just picture just just dirty newspaper. I'm calling it chaff. Just wrapped, and you just look like this dirty hunk of junk, right? But then this refining, consuming fire of God blows through the landfill, and there's this golden nugget shining in its purity. Fire of God burns the chaff away so we can shine. So I'm going to ask you this week to pray a bold prayer with me. Well, I'll say this. If if you're newer to the church and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to get to know Jesus. Ask him to reveal himself. It's good to have a healthy fear. The, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Get to know Jesus and what he's done for you. you. You probably do have a lot to fear. But Jesus wants to save you. Let him save you. But I don't think that's where most of us are this morning. So for the rest of you, I'm going to ask you to, to ask Jesus to baptize you with fire. I think it's a bold prayer to pray. But I've been a pastor long enough, I've been a human being long enough to know that it's really easy for us to have some sins that have just been a part of our life so long, we've gotten good at excusing it. We've gotten pretty complacent because we, can't, we know we can't save ourselves and we can't change ourselves. But I'm, I'm willing to wager that Probably all of us have at least one sin that we're just a little too comfortable with. It's just a little too deep. It's been there a little too long. It's just such a part of our routine that we've, we've kind of accepted it and we don't think we'll ever change. I'm going to ask you to cry out to Jesus this week to baptize you with fire and burn that up. I'm talking about some addictions. I'm talking about some generational sins. You know what I'm talking about. Holy Spirit will make it known to you. It's a bold prayer. It's a scary prayer. But I preached the way I did because I don't want us to be afraid of Jesus. He wants good for you. And I know we think, man, I'm whole. What is Jesus? All he's going to do is burn away the chaff so you can shine. Let him burn away the chaff. Let him baptize you with fire. Let the intense fire of God's love burn it up so it's gone. (laughs) Or maybe I'll say it this way. Let God burn up the lies of the enemy that are telling you you're only chaff. There's nothing shiny about you. There's no needle in here. You're just a bunch of hay. You're going to blow away in the next wind. No, let the fire of God's love speak to your heart about who you really are. You're, You're a diamond. You're a gem. You're, what do we all, I always say, I love this. How valuable are you? You're only as valuable as somebody is willing to pay. How much should Jesus pay for you? His life. That's how valuable you are. Let the fire of God's love burn away the lies of the enemy. Telling you you're not valuable, you're not worthy. You are. And don't forget, you can't refine yourself. You need to be saved. Don't you get lukewarm or complacent with your sin. We're all a bunch of snakes, amen? But man, the baptism of fire of Jesus, that's good news, amen? Let's pray.
Jesus, yeah, I know. There's a part of me that's like, we just need to do peace and hope and joy. (laughs) But we're leaning into Advent, and Advent, we're not celebrating your coming yet. We're not. We refuse to get complacent. We refuse to lean into cheap grace. We want to prepare. And John the Baptist prepares us. And it's a strong and it's a serious message, but it's still good news. It is still good news. So Jesus, I'm going to voice this on behalf of all of us, but I do hope that we continue to ask you throughout the week. Would you baptize us with fire? There's some real sin in our life. There's selfishness. There's pride. There is lust. There is ego. There is fear. There is shame. There is jealousy. There is envy. Constantly thinking about what we deserve. How do other people have what we want? Burn it off. We don't want that anymore. Free us, Jesus. We don't want to be in bondage to sin. We want to be free. Burn up the chaff. Burn up the straw. Burn up the hay. Burn up the wood. Bring the axe. And then refine us. Let us shine. Let us see the gem that we are in you. Let us see the gold that we are in you. Make us whole, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.